This week on Dig Me Out. And at least one glass of wine in me and starting another one. Like this is probably what I would want to put on the headphones and just kind of zone out to. Tim and Jay review excerpts from A Love Circus by Lisa Germano. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 219, 219er of season five. We have, once again, a requested review. Requested, requested review. They've been coming in fast and furious lately, Jay. Lots of people... Jumping on the requested review. That's exactly exactly what it sounds like. Yep. That's awesome. We have requested reviews all the way to the summer right now. We are backlogged with requested reviews. So people who have recently suggested them, I apologize, but we will be getting to them as soon as possible. With so many other things lined up with roundtables and interviews, we're not being able to squeeze all these in as much as we'd like. So um, we're going to get to them. We promise. But this week, an old friend of the show david gorgos dirty gert on twitter he came to us with another one of his reviews he's offered a a number of uh, requested reviews in the past years and this year he brings to us a request with for an artist that i i just read about not too long ago in a book by i think it was martin aston i think is his name it's called facing the other way it's about the record label 4ad uh, the UK label that turned into an, you know, partly an American label for a while. Um, mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking about an artist named Lisa, Lisa Germano, or as I like to call her, Lisa Hermano. Um, and her album from 1996, I believe. Yes, 1996, called Excerpts from a Love Circus. Now, Jay, were you familiar at all with Lisa Germano? It sounds like... Somebody I may have went to high school with, but uh, not the not the artist. No, no. I, I this was another one when I I heard the name. I was like, oh yeah, I kind of think I remember. And then when I listened to the album, I was like, oh, I don't remember any of this. Yeah. So I think it was just a name that was in the '90s that I you know saw in the list of stuff we were supposed to play, and I probably skipped over it or ignored it and just played something I wanted to play. <laughs> it's such a like. I don't know. No, it's just an, such an average name. Yes. Right. I mean, it doesn't, I think that's what, when you said uh, we were reviewing this record, I was a little bit confused. <laughs> it's like, is this really an artist? It, it's that simple of a name. Yes. It's not Liz fair or jewel or, or Fiona apple. Or, Fiona you know apple. I mean? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So since we're both rather unfamiliar with Lisa Germano, let's talk about, um, some history of Lisa Germano. History of the band. So Lisa Germano was born in Mishawaka, Indiana sure. in 1958, June 27, 1958. One of six children. Her parents encouraged her to um, learn an instrument from an early age. All the children were encouraged. And she started writing music when she was seven years old. She took up the violin and studied music. Ended up becoming a member of John Mellencamp's band. 
1987, she joined the band during the recording of the album The Lonesome Jubilee, and she worked and toured with him for several years after that. She also became a touring member of bands such as Simple Minds and the Indigo Girls. Now, while she was doing that, she started recording music on her own. And in 1991, she started her own record label, put out the lo-fi recording on the way down from the Moon Palace. It's her first full-length album. That caught the attention of Capitol Records, and she signed in 1992. Her major label debut, Happiness, was released in 1993. However, as is so often the case in the 90s, there was a personnel shakeup at Capitol um, just before the release of the album. So most of the people that were involved in supporting her at the label were out. And once the album came out, the record label didn't put much support behind it. So she lobbied the label to let her have the record back and find a new label to put it out. And that's when she hooked up with 4AD. Um, and 4AD was run by um, Ivo Russell Watts, I believe, at the time. He was a huge fan of hers, and he ended up becoming very involved in the release of a number of like EPs and singles and, and albums that came out over the years later, to the point where he, even though he was running the record label, he was actually in the studio with her like remixing songs, and um, they ended up re-releasing the record that she had put out on Capitol with a different track listing and different mixes and basically a different record when it came out her actual third full-length album geek the girl was released in 1994 this album that we're reviewing excerpts from a love circus was released in 1996 slide was released in 1998 and this is another interesting turn in her career she was invited to join the smashing pumpkins at this point they were uh, a door was released uh, a couple weeks before slide and Billy Corgan asked her to join as a backing vocalist on the tour for a door. Hmm. Um, at first she turned him down, but then Billy Corgan said, no, please, you know, come on tour. It's going to be a, a collaborative environment when we go out on tour. Now, at this point, I believe Jimmy Chamber was out of the band and, and there were some extra members like keyboard players and some extra people in the band at this point. So it was a bigger production. So they spent four weeks rehearsing in preparation for a four month tour and then the night before the tour was supposed to begin, Corgan f- uh, fired her with no explanation through their tour manager. And then the band went on a tour and she was left behind. So that mm. happened. So she decided, well, screw it. So she took the label or the excuse me, the album that she had just released slide and decided to go tour on it. Um, while on tour, she was notified by 4AD. They were dropping her from the roster. And at the end of 1998, she announced that she was quitting the music business and fired her management. She moved to Hollywood and began working in an independent bookstore. bookstore. She continued to do some songwriting on the side, but mostly worked with other artists, um, including Neil Finn of Crowded House, Joey Wanaker, and David Bowie on some random projects. She actually officially started recording again um, in 2002. She released a self-released album called Concentrated. Then she put out a um, compilation called Rare, Usual, and Just Bad Songs later that year. And then signed to the Artist Direct label and put out Lullaby for a Liquid Pig in 2003. In 2006, she put out In the Maybe World. In 2009, she put out Magic Neighbor. 
And in 2013, she put out the most recent album, No Elephants. So that is the history of Lisa Germano. If you would like to suggest an album for us to review, please head on over to our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. The feedback we got was from was from David Gorgos, and it was very brief. He just said, this is my choice for the best album of 1996. Now, wow. yeah, that's a pretty bold statement. And perhaps next year, Jay, when we kick off the 2016 season, like we did with the beginning of the 2015 season, we hosted a roundtable on the best albums of 1995. Mm-hmm. We should have a 1996 roundtable to kick off next year. And we'll have David on to defend his choice of excerpts from a love circus for his favorite album of 1996. Sure. Put the date, put it in your date book, David, you're booked. Other than that, we didn't get any feedback. So let's move on to the record itself. Uh, let's talk about what worked and what did not work for us on the record. Um, I'm going to start Jay. I'm going to do gonna, it. I'm going to take over this section of the uh, discussion. And I want to talk about mood because I think what really works for me on this record is the mood it established. Um, it's very dark and sparse. Uh, there's a lot of disorienting sounds, whether it's um, an atonal violin, which is, an, is, is one of the instruments that Lisa Germano plays, or a lot of weird bass textures that are really, really like in con- in contradiction with what the song is doing and the song be very mellow and quiet and then there's this very abrupt bass part and i really enjoyed that aspect of the of the album these like dissonant and discordant uh sounds that were going on with a lot of very pretty melodies and a lot of very um ethereal sounding uh keyboard some synth stuff and then some live instruments with strings and piano and very simplistic, uh, you know, shuffled drums or swing drums that are, are played mid tempo to slow. I just think that this it establishes a very clear mood at the beginning of the record, and it really holds on to that. There's some, you know, they they up the tempo here and there, but it's it's a very mellow record, but it's also a very dark and disturbing record in a lot of senses. And I really enjoyed that. What worked for you? Well, the production is um, remarkable. You know, it's. Um, relies a lot on uh, orchestrating uh, a variety of instruments. Um, I think what's really interesting about it is that everything is performed and recorded with a certain constraint or restraint. Mm-hmm. This is the way to say it. Everything's, uh, nothing ever really uh, is, it, it moves past a certain point in terms of like, um, sort of how the volume it's played and, and the intensity it's played at instead to create dynamic and interest, they layer, you know, instruments in, bring instruments in kind of like you said, sometimes, you know, odd things you don't expect. This is also done sometimes to help strengthen the songwriting. I think, well, I think all these songs are based off of pretty, uh, a core of pretty strong melody they're not necessarily, um, in terms of the songs and the arrangements themselves, not you know extremely sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of rely on the production to 
to take that original thread of an idea and keep it compelling for the full three, four, or five minutes, however long the song might be. Um, so in that respect, you know, again, the the production itself plays a huge role in, you know, whether or not the songs are successful. You know, I think any of the songs that we just, she performed them on a single instrument, they wouldn't be nearly as compelling as they are with the full production. Agreed. So that's, uh, to me, the most successful part of the record and, and probably the piece that that makes me want to, you know, continue to listen to it past, a, you know, the first couple spins. Whoever is around Whoever's in my head Whoever you are now I like you I know you like my true thoughts I love you like my best thoughts I want to, uh, another thing that I really liked about the record is her ability to take what are pretty dark lyrical themes and turn them into much, I don't, I don't know what to say, not brighter, but she's able to turn pop in, in, in as much as an album that's this dark overall is able to into like pop melodies and pop s- structures. I'm thinking of songs like Bruises, which is a pretty poppy song. It has this like country swing to it. And for her, I mean, it's, it's a poppy song um, in the overall scheme of things, but um, there are a lot of really interesting and at times disturbing, but also funny lyrics that they're not meant to be jokes, but just like turns of phrase that catch you. The song singing to the birds makes reference to like, what if your hero I don't remember what the exact lyric was, but it was like something like, what if your hero never was? Or what if your hero wasn't interested or something like that? I'm trying to remember exactly what she said. There's a lot of instances where she takes very dark themes and twists them into very sort of fun or I don't know. That's, that's like the wrong word, but you know what I'm going for? Yeah. Yeah. Like on uh, lovesick, you know, it's one of the hooks of the song is the lyric. You're not my Yoko. Oh no. You know, mm-hmm. so it's kind of like in the context of what how she's saying it in the full story, it's kind of biting, but at the same time, it has a little bit of a you know, it makes you smirk a little bit, you know what I mean? Yep. Just maybe because of the reference or what have you, but it walks that line between you know, lyrically having some bite, but also being clever and having a bit of a sense of humor or at least self awareness, maybe is the, is the way to. To think mm-hmm. about it, it's not like it's not like self self loathing or overly melodramatic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm on board with that. There's quite a lot of um, interesting players on this record. Kenny Arnoff 
plays drums. Huh. That's one guy. Yeah. Um, John Strom, who is from the Blake Babies, who was Juliana Hatfield's first band. He plays yeah. on this record. Now, what's interesting is that on the record itself, they don't list the individual credits. It just says these people played on the record. It doesn't say, like, who played what on which record, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And the producer, or one of the producers, I believe there's two, is um, Bill Bottrell, who is probably better known for... I mean, he's done a lot of albums, but they include, like, Bad by Michael Jackson and the Traveling Woolberries and Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever. I mean, he had a he has a really, I guess you'd say, pop resume. Mm-hmm. So to hear him working in this sort of uh, soundscape, it's it's an interesting, I guess, left turn in terms of, you know, you think of those records or Michael Jackson's Dangerous. <laughs> you know, these don't they, these don't work together in the same way you would think a lot of other records would but he's right, right. he's a pretty uh he's got a grammy nominations and wins let's put it that way yeah sure i'm curious about you know how how he integrated his sort of more pop sensibility into if if this was a darker record yeah, and he brought yeah. that out of her some of the more poppy choruses yeah it's almost i almost feel like the production is fighting pop like I feel like at the core of some of these songs with the melodies, you could really amplify them and build them into much poppier songs than they are. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the production is purposefully restraining that, like pulling it back and keeping it more stark and unexpected and darker. You know what I mean? Like that's interesting. I That was my impression of the record was that, you know, with the threads of some of these songs, you can kind of hear them almost being, um, especially with the addition of, you know, harmonies and bigger vocals and more dynamics, you know, some of these things being built into completely different songs that are much more pop um, friendly. So to hear that, um, you know, some of the collaborators here come from that background is, is very unexpected. So what didn't work for you on the record? Uh, I really struggled with the, at the end of the day, I respected the restraint and I respected the vision of the record to stay mm-hmm. within that zone. Like you, you started off describing that, that mood and committing to it. But I, I really just so, so badly wanted some of these songs to just explode, you know, into something big. Yeah. And they just don't do it. And um, 
you know, a lot, like several of them, you know, my notes are that they sound like um, the stripped down, you know, simple bridge of another song. You know, you know, like a technique of, you know, when you get to the bridge, you kind of pull things back. I'm thinking of uh, maybe think of a latter day uh, Catherine Wheel. Like you'd have a big epic song, but maybe it would start with a really quiet intro or a really quiet outro or have a really quiet, you know, bridge. Right. And in those moments, you know, it sounds very similar to this, both in her, um, the way that, you know, she delivers uh, a line and the mood and the instrumentation. But, you know, they would, that would just be a brief moment of the song or a brief section of the song. Mm -hmm. Um, It wouldn't be the whole song, you know, and in this case, it is the whole song and it's all so, so subtle. I, I struggle with it a little bit to be able to really allow it to grab me, you know, and take me on a journey. I, I sort of felt myself distant from it um, because of that, that restraint that's persistent through the whole record. I agree with you on that. I, I think Lovesick is the perfect example where on the back half of the song, she really, she lets the vocal go, you know, she, yeah. And the, the vocal, the violin and the bass get a little scary <laughs> on that part of the record or that part of the song. And um, I would have liked to have heard her, you know, stretch her vocal more on this record. Um, I don't know that every song provides that opportunity. That's a song that does in the way that it's structured and the way that the tempo works. But I, th- I feel like there's a lot of restraint. And I feel like her vocal is the thing that could be the least restrained and it would be the most interesting part. And I wish she did, would, would have done that more. Yeah, like I love the tone of her voice. I think the phrasing um, is usually really strong, but it's always like just a note above a whisper or a hush or a, you know, mm-hmm. and it doesn't vary enough from me from, from that. So like I could hear, you know, maybe what you're saying, like the production maybe staying where it is, but her voice going somewhere and breaking out in, in, at times and, and, you know, going off the rails a little bit in the way that some of the dissonance that happens on this record is really, really interesting, but the vocal never participates in that. You know, it's always this even keel, you know, meter delivery, one tone through the whole thing. You're just above a spoken voice or a whisper and nothing more than that. Yeah. You know, you know, uh, I guess if, if you're really in the mood for that, you know what I mean? Like I can see going on the journey of this record and appreciating it, but for a repeated listen in any scenario, it's difficult. So for example, like the first time I listened to it, 
was on my commute home, you know, in the car after a long day, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. sort of feeling drained. And you put this on, you're like, whoa, this is not the right vibe I'm, I want right now. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. this is, uh, it, you know, taking weight, it's requires way too much attention. And, you know, it's, it's kind of pulling me down in terms of, you know, it, it's not, uh, the tempos aren't there and it's so atmospheric it just you know did not work in that setting at all like it's right. a, it's a headphone listen you know kind of with the lights dim and you really you know sort of in the mood to, to pay attention to it and really take it in glass of wine maybe a warm yeah bath. yeah exactly that's what i was thinking on the way home i was like wow if i had a nice uh had a had, had at least one glass of wine in me and starting another one like this is probably what I would want to put on the headphones and just kind of zone out to and experience but you know it doesn't work in every scenario right yeah I agree with you on that <laughs> this is not going to be your workout mix Mm-mm. no it's not going to be your do anything mix it's your like zone out stare at the wall I wanted to you know this came out in 96 Probably not a surprise. There were no videos made for this record. I Love a Snot and Love Sick and I think maybe one other song got pushed to like college radio, but this was not like a mainstream record in any way, shape, or form. This is around the time of Fiona Apple, and it made me think about her work with John Bryan. Um, and there were touches here where I heard like a maybe a Mellotron or... Oh, yeah things that John Bryan has used. Uh, sure. it, it made me wonder if maybe, you know, John Bryan had been a producer, if this had gotten pushed into like a slightly more commercial, not necessarily commercial in a bad way, but just brought out the hooks a little bit more, or brought out a little bit more in terms of rhythm that this record um, doesn't have. I wonder if you thought about that at all. Yeah. You know, I did, I did think of, of uh, John Bryan quite a bit and, I guess I could go two ways with it. One would be, let's start with the drums. Like the, they sound great. There's great performances. Again, like the vocal, whether it's the performance or the way it's produced, the drums are always very controlled and understated, distant. Um, There's maybe one song where, you know, it kind of starts with a bigger drum sound. It might be track two. It starts with a bigger drum sound and, you know, it it's the one time where where the presence of the drums is really felt, you know, for a moment mm-hmm. and then it kind of fades back. I think John Bryan, one thing he would have done differently is is played that up, right? And I think you alluded to that as um he would he would do similar kind of orchestrated production and, and you know, odd instruments and stringed instruments and Mellotron and those sorts of things. But I, I think he would have a stronger sense of, you know, rhythm to the songs, which I think would help quite a bit. The other thing I think, regardless of John Bryan, would be, if you're comparing it to Fiona Apple, is that vocally she does a version of what I'm talking about. You know, she'll go in really strange places with her voice or push it right. to, you know, and, and be dramatic and, you know, have, uh, you know, contrast and, and, and really go to the extremes of one to the other. You know, she she does that really well, whether it be through volume or phrasing or, you know, what have you. Um, she 
can take over even with a song that, you know, has a simple production, you know, just piano, for example, you know, she can kind of guide it with her vocal performance. So even outside of the production, you know, I think that's why the difference between Fiona Apple and this record is, even if the production was exactly the same, it comes down to the vocal performance and maybe even the vocal ability. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to judge what uh, Lisa Germano's capabilities are because it's so restrained on this record. You know, she right. would be capable of those things, but for whatever reason, it's deciding not to do that. Even the restrained aspect of her vocal takes a, a control and a um, an ability that to maintain that that it's dif- that is difficult. That a lot of people cannot, you know, maintain that sort of control throughout an entire song or record or performance so let's talk about her go ahead i didn't sense that it was a a lack of ability i sensed it as a conscious decision i just questioned the question the decision gotcha let's talk about our overall ratings for this record jay worthy album better ep or decent single are you like david gorgos ready to crown this the best album of 1996 (laughs) oh no i i sorry you know, I think there's a lot to like here, um, but not enough for a worthy album. I think there's, I think there's an EP in here for me. Um, mm-hmm. I could see myself pulling three, four songs from this and and enjoying it, but uh, the for, the full journey is just not as uh, just not compelling enough. I'm with you partially. I think this works as a whole piece of music that you can put it on and, and enjoy it all the way through without it being too in your face. Um, you know, this would be, uh, this would be good uh, having a cocktail party music mm. um, for the background. But like you said, it's also like, if you just want to like sort of sit down and relax and just focus on the music, there's so much little interesting detail going on here and there. That you can, if you put it on a pair of headphones, you can really sort of let that wash over you. But in terms of when I start to break it down song by song, it becomes more of an EP for me. I'm probably in the five song range for e- for an EP. So maybe one or two songs more than you. Um, but I, I feel like this can work either way. But in terms of if I was going to pull songs, I'm probably at a five song EP. So there you yeah. go. So we need to thank David Gorgos for his suggestion of Lisa Germano's excerpts from a love circus. If you would like to suggest an album for review like David did, please visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. And as always, feel free to leave us some positive feedback over at iTunes. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, We have a number of interesting request reviews coming up i mentioned and we also have a number of interesting shows overall coming up so uh i'm not going to tip my hat yet but we're going to go in some there's going to be some weird shows that we weren't even planning at the beginning of the year that are going to be popping up and you just have to wait and see it's going to be interesting so things are going to get weird man things are going to get weird things are going to be crazy keep your keep your uh your hat on I've been in Austin for a year. It's time to get weird. Exactly. Keep it weird. Only way this gets weirder, Jay, is if I move to Portland. If I'm in Portland and you're in Austin, this would be the weirdest podcast on the planet. It would be. 
All right. God, we we have to be way more uh, uh, ironic. Yeah. You have to, like, hey man. And you'd have to grow a mustache. <laughs> yeah, an ironic mustache with a handlebar. That's not gonna happen. So I'm just gonna say for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Uh